Our scripture for this morning, as you see on your screen, is going to come from Acts chapter 2. Uh, so obviously we celebrated Pentecost last Sunday. Um, and today we are going to uh, continue um, that theme um, from Acts chapter 2. Uh, and this morning we're going to look at... Um, we're going to focus our attention on verses 36 through 41, um, but really for the message, we'll be considering a lot more of the events of, uh, of chapter two. But uh, Acts chapter two, beginning of verse 36, it says, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This morning, <clears throat> We want to talk about three keys to a transformed life. Three keys to a transformed life. Last week, we celebrated the wonderful Pentecost. And our focus led us to the events recorded in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. The conversation was focused around the power of Pentecost. And we talked about how the Spirit was given, the power of the Spirit was given because of the believer's unity. The Lord waits for a moment when the believers are together and unified, not only in the same place, but of the same mindset and of the same spirit. And we highlighted from the text the fact that when the spirit was poured out on Pentecost, that it was poured out equally on men and women. It was poured out equally on the apostles and the other disciples, that there was no distinction in terms of the amount of spirit that was given to the believers, but that the spirit was poured out equally, um, but that it manifests within their gifts and their purpose differently. And then we closed with talking about the fact that the power of the spirit was given empathetically and the fact that God takes into consideration our lived experience when he gives us what we need and that we are then given what we have so that we can exercise that same empathy guided by the spirit in sharing what we've been given with other people in a way that they can hear. Remember in the beginning of Acts chapter two, when the spirit is poured out on the believers in the upper room, the spirit descends like clove tongues of fire on each of the disciples and they all begin to proclaim the excellencies of God in languages that they didn't know before that moment. The noise is and the ruckus is so attractive that those in the multitude outside in the area begin to come just to see what's going on. And as they come, they realize that these people who are all the same kind of people, all Galileans, are all proclaiming the goodness of God in a language that they can understand. And they're literally people from all around the world. This then leads to the desire for these people to gather to find out what is going on in this moment. 
And having drawn the attention of the crowd now, the Lord, having brought the disciples out of the upper room, down into the space, uh, down into the, uh, into the square, into the town, into the streets, uh, where the people could hear, there is a powerful declaration to follow the powerful demonstration. The Lord pours out the spirit on his people. That's the powerful demonstration of the spirit's ability to be able to break down barriers as the excellencies of God are proclaimed in a relevant language to the hearer. But then there is powerful declaration after the demonstration where Peter is moved to stand up and to preach the first message of the newly empowered church. And because of the message that Peter preaches on that particular day, the scripture tells us that over 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom in that day. And as we go on to read more about the early church in Acts chapter 2, we see a very unique experience among the people that claim to be believers of Jesus Christ and citizens of the kingdom. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but we see something very special that happens among them. And we come to understand that the way that they interact with one another and the way that they love one another, the way that they support one another, the way that they sacrifice for one another, that it is so abnormal and so contrary to the uh, regular mode of method of operations for people during the day that people know that they are followers of Jesus because of the way that they love one another. These people are distinguished from all of the other religious sects, all of the other uh, uh, ideologies and philosophy groups, all of the other schools of thought. These people are distinguished from all of them, not because of what they know, not because of the power that they demonstrate, but because of the way that they love and care for one another. The reason that they are able to demonstrate this superior level of care and concern and love for one another is because of the power of God dwelling in them that allows them to look at one another and love one another the way that God loves them. And it makes me wonder sometimes, why is it today if the same spirit is present today within us dwelling within us, why does it seem as though change is more prominent in the church than true transformation? What happens in Acts chapter 2 is not the changing of people's lives. They don't encounter the spirit of God and the word of God and just change because the thing about change is that when change happens in your life, then things that change can also change back to what they were before. And it is very clear from the record in the text as you continue to read through Acts and even as you continue to learn more about church history, that when these people encounter Jesus, their lives were never the same. They never went back to the way that they used to be. It wasn't change in their lives. It was transformation. The uh, example that God gives us uh, tangibly for our lives to make it easier for us to understand and to digest what real transformation is, is seen in the life and the example of the caterpillar. Y'all know the story and the example already, you've seen it plenty of times in your life where this nasty little, filthy little, grimy little worm looking thing that's crawling around all over the place, eating up everything and leaving holes in your plants, all of a sudden has to go into this period of isolation where out of the view of everyone else, it, it engages in a metamorphosis where literally it transforms into a different being that is now able to fly and, uh, and eats different food uh, and is totally changed in such a way that it can never go back to being what it was before. A butterfly or a moth, once they become what they were designed to become, can never go back to what they used to be before the moment of transformation happen in their lives and unfortunately today in the church 
There are too many instances of change, but not transformation. There are too many instances where we make the decision today to do the right thing. But then two weeks from now, when the enthusiasm has worn off, we go back to handling things and dealing with things the way that we used to before the Lord allowed the light to go on. And before he connected the dots, before we found out that he loved us, before we learned that he had grace and mercy for us, before we found out that he had a plan for us, we leave everything that's in front of us and go back to the way that things used to be and I keep asking the question why why if the same spirit is present today dwelling within us why does it seem as though change is more prominent in the church than true transformation I think because in our text today here in Acts chapter 2, we see that there are three real solid elements to experiencing a transformed life. And much like a recipe, it takes all of them in order to produce something that you want to eat. The process of transformation requires participation. 98% of what God does and desires to do in our lives, he has already covered. He's provided the plan. He's made the provision. He's given the purpose. But it's that final 2% of participation from you and I that determines whether what we see will just be an opportunity to change or a moment of transformation. So here are the three keys to a transformed life that we see present in Acts chapter two. First of which is what Acts chapter 2 is all about. The presence of the Spirit. That's the first key to a transformed life. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The presence of the Holy Spirit is key to a transformed life. Because without the Spirit, true transformation can't take place. Here's why. Transformation cannot be facilitated by the individual or the entity that is being transformed. I'm going to say it again. Transformation cannot be facilitated by the individual or the entity that is being transformed. Transformation can only take place with the outward influence of another entity. You can choose to change on your own, but because change is based on your willpower, then when your willpower gets low, it's gonna be easy for you to change back to what's more convenient and for, with, uh, to, to what's more familiar. But for true transformation to take place, transformation literally means to go outside of your form. And the only way that you and I are able to get outside of our form or to access anything outside of our form is to be connected to the spirit that's greater than us. 
And this is why in other instances in our society, you may see people who get enthusiastic about, you know, altering their diets and things of that nature. And they may make the decision in their lives to go ahead and change their diet for the rest of their lives. There are plenty of people that wake up one day and they decide I'm not eating any more hot dogs. I'm not eating any more bacon. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that in public talk about they don't eat pork and then they definitely be at home eating BLTs. That's all I'm going to say. But. Uh, there are people all throughout our society that make decisions on a daily basis that are life altering. But those decisions aren't the same as the transformative decision to align our lives with the God of the universe and with the purposes and the plans that he has for us, which gives us access to the power and the path to be able to bring about true transformation, not only in our lives, but in our homes and in our communities and everywhere that we go and it is only possible with the spirit of God because here it is even when we make the decision we don't yet in that moment have the capacity to follow through with all of the actions that are going to validate the decision that we made what are you talking about when we make the decision to embrace Jesus Christ and his uh his um our free gift of salvation made available through his sacrifice for us on the cross, the shedding of his blood, which makes atonement for our sins so that when the father looks at us, he doesn't see the sickness of our sin, the darkness of our sin, but he sees the shed blood of his son. When we make the decision to believe in him, there's still this thing that's going to be chasing us the rest of our earthly lives called sin. And we can make the decision in the moment and be enthusiastic about it and appreciate God so much for saving us and doing everything that he did to save us and to deliver us. But if he doesn't send the spirit, then that moment of transformation only ends up being a moment of change. Because as soon as our emotions change, as soon as our feelings change, as soon as something more convenient and more comfortable comes, then it becomes easy for us to make decisions that will uh, seek to fulfill the desires of our flesh and our pursuit of comfort instead of making the decisions that will keep us in alignment with him. That's why Jesus knows that unless he goes, he can't send the Holy Spirit. And he knows that if we're going to be successful in experiencing transformed lives, it is only with the presence of the spirit. But that's also why people can sit in church the whole time, can sit in the presence of the spirit, but the presence of the spirit not be in them. And their lives never be reflective of the fruits of the spirit. But the early church is able to experience this amazing community and culture of love and support and of sacrifice that is reflective of the love that God has for us. They are able to cultivate this amazing culture that is such an anomaly that people literally showed up just to see what it was all about because they had tapped into the spirit of God and the spirit gave them the strength to be able to make the difficult decisions that were uncomfortable. Part of the challenge with the church today that we struggle with uh, being able to build community that is reflective of the community of the early church is because we won't surrender and submit ourselves to the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times when we when we talk about that, when we have these conversations about being surrendered and submitted to the spirit, we always think about it through this lens of like the major areas of sin in our lives. And, you know, the things that we do that are displeasing to God, but it's not always about those big things. Yes, it's about the big things, but it's also about the little ways that we listen to God. And truthfully, the little ways end up making a big difference. It's when you are uh, sharing in reflection groups with a brother or sister and something that they say resonates in your heart and you hear this little voice in your head that says that you ought to encourage them and give them a hug and show them some support. But you say to yourself, oh, I don't know them like that. I don't know how they're going to receive it. So I'm not going to do it. And that moment of disobedience actually becomes detrimental to the church's ability to be able to build a culture of support because God knows 
knows what we need. He also knows what our brothers and sisters need. And when he charges us and challenges us to serve and support our brothers and sisters, if we are disobedient to him, then the church isn't getting what the church needs. It's the little stuff. It's the moment when somebody tells you their story and there is alignment between something that you've been through and you are charged and challenged in that moment to be vulnerable and transparent with them so that they understand that they're not alone in this world. But if you keep your mouth shut, then you have withheld from them what God designed to give to them so that they could have the strength to be able to make it through. And then we wonder why people keep coming to church but still be overwhelmed and still be beat down and still be depressed and still feel alone and still feel isolated is because we're not embracing the first key of true life transformation. The presence of the spirit that provides guidance and direction for how we interact with one another and how we interact with him. And if we want our lives to be different, it is a matter of embracing presence of the spirit of God when the spirit falls on the on the believers on the apostles and the disciples in Acts chapter 2 remember that they had been in hiding they've been hiding out behind locked doors because they were so concerned about what somebody was going to do to them because they were followers of Jesus watch this the spirit descends on them, is poured out on them in Acts chapter 2, and what happens? These people that were once cowering in fear behind locked doors are now in the streets proclaiming loudly the excellencies of God in every language just in case somebody might misunderstand what it is that's happening in the moment. <laughs> The power of the presence of the spirit in our lives has the ability to transform us from fearful and cowardly fans of Jesus Christ into bold and courageous followers of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is how we find the courage and the capacity to be able to do what it is God is calling us to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the apostle Paul tells them, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And there are too many of us that are still living in bondage, bondage to our past, bondage to our failures, bondage to our brokenness, bondage to our limitations, bondage to what other people have said about us or thought about us, bondage to the ways that we have disqualified ourselves, bondage to all of these negative thoughts and negative thinking, bondage to negative relationships, bondage to bad memories. But where God's spirit is, there is liberty and freedom because we are Reminded that Jesus died for all the things that were keeping us bound and that when the father rose him up on that third day morning he came out with the keys to death hell and the grave and all power in his hands power over your past power over your brokenness power over your limitations power over your fears power over everything that's trying to keep you living a diminished life when God wants you to live a great life When we walk with the presence of the spirit of God, we won't live in fear. Scripture says very clearly that perfect love drives out fear. The love of God and fear cannot coexist in the same place. When we allow the spirit, when we receive the outpouring of the spirit on our lives, it drives out fear. So when you start thinking about all the things that you're afraid of, you start thinking about all the things that you worry about from week to week. You start thinking about all the things that you've had the opportunity to do, but that you haven't done because you're afraid of what's going to happen or what the outcome is going to be or how it's going to impact you. When you start thinking about everything that God is charging and challenging you to do and all of the possibilities of what might happen and how scary those things are. When you start thinking about how God is trying to take you out of who you are and make you into somebody else that literally is the process of transformation 
when you start thinking about how scared you are to go from being a caterpillar to a butterfly because you ain't never flew in your life before and you don't know what's going to happen if the wind comes and catches your wings when you start thinking about how afraid you are allow the spirit to overwhelm you with the love of God that was so great for you that when you were still a sinner Christ died for you and acknowledge the fact that Jesus ain't about to die and save somebody that's just going to mess everything up. Jesus is not going to waste his life for somebody that doesn't have the potential and the possibility to be able to do what it is they're being invited to do. A transformed life begins with the presence of the Spirit of God. But in our text, we see that once the spirit is poured out and it is present in the space. The spirit then brings order to the perceived chaos. And he begins to move the mouth of Peter. In verse 36. The scripture says, this is Peter, he stands up. And by this time, he's already, like, opened the discourse. He's been talking for, for a couple of verses by now. And as Peter is preaching, he gets to this point in his message, in verse 36, where he says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Second key to a transformed life is... The truth of the message. It's not just the presence of the spirit, but it is the truth of the message. Now, remember, these are the same disciples that just a couple of weeks before were running away scattered all over the place because Jesus had been arrested and he was being crucified. And then after Jesus is buried, they are locked behind closed doors because they are so afraid of the people who orchestrated the events to crucify Jesus and knowing that they have a desire not only to eradicate the individual, but the philosophy itself. And so they know that these people are coming for them next. But when the spirit is poured out, all of a sudden boldness replaces fear. And Peter stands up in the face of those same people and he tells them that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. And in case there is any confusion about which Jesus I'm talking about, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's the same dude that when, when Jesus was going through his uh uh, his, his trials and people was looking at him like won't you with Jesus this is the same dude that was like nah I ain't never heard of that dude before the same dude who cussed at a little girl cause she was like hey, I know you was with Jesus I can't say what he said but like that's how fearful he was and this is the same guy who now stands up in the face of the very people that shouted crucify him for Jesus on Friday. He stands up in their face and won't let them escape the reality of the truth of their interaction and relationship with God. Peter doesn't declare a message that will make them feel good about where they are and what they've done but rather he lays it all on the table, proclaiming them to be complicit murderers of the Messiah that they claimed to be waiting so long for. 
He literally stands up and says, you were waiting all this time for the Savior to come, and he stood right here in your face, and you killed him. You handed him over to lawless men. You were the catalyst for the innocent life of Jesus being hung on the cross. You were. When I was in high school um, playing football, actually it started in, in, uh, in Little League in middle school, but um, uh, people look at me crazy when I tell them that I have dislocated both of my shoulders uh, at least four times a piece. Um, uh, interestingly enough, when we were getting ready to, to move out here to Omaha, I was at Quentin's house, and I think like I raised my hand like over my head or something, and my shoulder just fell out. Um, it happened so frequently that, you know, after a while I learned how to put it back in myself. But the first couple of times that it happened, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't relocate my dislocation by myself. So I had to go to somebody that had the knowledge and the experience to be able to help me to relocate my shoulder. Now here's the problem. When my shoulder would fall out of place, there would be instant pain that would shoot through the entire left side of my body. But the only way for them to put things back in order was to cause more pain. Because they literally would take a towel and wrap it under my arm and one person would pull that towel that way and they would have another towel that they would wrap around my wrist and the other person would pull the towel that way. And it hurt. But it was also what was necessary to get my shoulder back to where it needed to be so that it could do what it was designed to do. I think y'all are connected enough to the spirit to be able to see where I'm going. Sometimes in our lives to get us out of these places of pain that we experience just simply by being human beings living in this world, sometimes it is necessary for a brief moment of pain so that we can get back into position and be able to do again what it is we were designed to do. You can't tell me that these individuals that have spent their lives trying to learn the scriptures and trying to live lives that honored God, regardless of their motives, you can't tell me that when Peter stands up that day and says the Son of God was killed because of you, that there wasn't some pain in their hearts. As a matter of fact, the scripture says it very specifically. We'll get to that in just a second. But there was pain that was necessary to be able to bring resolution to the greater pain that would continue to endure without intervention. The reality is each and every one of us, until we come to know Jesus, are living a life of pain in some way, shape or form. It is the pain of purposelessness. It's the pain of poverty. Poverty of love, poverty of identity, poverty of clarity, poverty of understanding, poverty of illumination and information and knowledge, poverty of access, poverty of relationship. Before we come to know Jesus, we all live with some deep-seated pain in our hearts and sometimes it is necessary for a brief moment of pain in order to alleviate the enduring pain. And that's why the truth of the gospel, though necessary, isn't always comfortable. The reality is we can't 
begin a relationship with Jesus until we acknowledge our error and our faults and how separated we are from him and how disobedient we have been to his will. It begins with self-assessment and analysis, which oftentimes is painful because we expect more from ourselves. And sometimes we don't want to look at the places in our lives that we know aren't pleasing to God because we want to continue to focus on the things that we want other people to see, all of the good stuff, all the exciting stuff and forget about the not good stuff but the reality is sometimes we got to come face to face with the pain of realizing that we have fallen short sometimes we have to come face to face with the pain of the acknowledgement that we didn't just mess up we messed up on purpose Sometimes we have to come face to face with the pain of acknowledging the fact that we weren't just thrown into that situation. We made the decision to be there. And allow the truth of that moment, allow the truth that the spirit brings when he illuminates our lives to help us to finally begin to be honest with God. Scripture says that uh, the one who is forgiven much loves much. And part of the reason why we struggle with loving God is because we haven't been honest with ourselves about how much we've needed his forgiveness. And how freely he has given that forgiveness to us. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. So here's the question. How can we be anything but truthful when proclaiming a message about the truth? And that means sometimes the message will have to very honestly, very bluntly, and very clearly hold us accountable for the position that we're in in our relationship with God. You can't grow together until you are able to be honest with each other. It's the same in your relationships with one another here on earth. And it's no different in your relationship with God. The only limitation to smooth connection and communication between you and your heavenly father is your willingness to be honest and transparent and vulnerable about stuff that he already knows about. You ever uh, you ever had somebody do you wrong? Like like they might have been talking trash about you behind your back. And, um, you know, and they don't know that, you know, that they was talking trash about you. And so but but when they around you, like they act kind of funny because they know that they've been talking trash about you. And you just like you don't even have to front, yo. You really don't. I mean, I already know you shady. It's like um, <laughs> at the at the house, sometimes the kids, will, the kids will do something that they don't think I know about. And, you know, those are usually the days where Joseph will pop up out of nowhere and be like, Daddy, is there something I can do for you today? (laughs) Daddy, I love you so much. Now, he's a very affectionate kid, so he does that a lot anyway, but when he start going overboard, I'm like, all right, what you break this time? But it'd be a lot of times where like they're trying to navigate the moment because they don't know the things that I already know. And the reality is I already know, but I'm still here. I already know, but I still love you. I already know, but our relationship can't be fruitful until you're willing to acknowledge what you've done. Because you got to love me enough to know that I love you in spite of what you've done. Because what reservation and what dishonesty and what a lack of vulnerability communicates is a lack of trust. 
And how can God have the free reign in our lives to do what he wants to do if we won't trust him? If we demonstrate to him that he's not trustworthy to us. Why? Because we won't trust him with the most vulnerable parts of our lives that he already knows about. You're not hiding anything from God. He already knows. That's part of the reason, at least for me, why, you know, people think that, that when they come tell me stuff, I'm be like, oh, man, you was crazy. You did that. It's like, no, stupid. Like, I know the stuff that I do, and I know that God still loves me and got grace for me. So why am I going to discount somebody else? Because their humanity manifests in a different way than mine. See, when we walk in the light of truth, not only does it positively impact and affect our relationship with God, but it enhances our relationship with others because you can't walk in the truth of who you are and how much you need Jesus and look at other people as if they're not as good as you. You can't do it. Because when you have to be face to face with your limitations and your brokenness and your need for God, then you realize we all just trying to get through this, all just trying to be who God wants us to be, and we all need his love, his grace, and his mercy every day. How can we be anything but truthful when proclaiming a message about truth? Peter stands up and tells them to their faces, y'all are the ones that crucified Jesus. Because the power of the Spirit gives him clarity and gives him the authority to be able to speak the truth honestly. And there are too many times where the spirit is guiding us to be truthful with one another that we do not share the truth because we worried about people's feelings. And then there are other times where the enemy uses the truth as an excuse for us to be able to beat down and belittle other people. That's why the presence of the spirit precedes the message of truth because the truth misapplied can do more destruction than development but when guided by the spirit the truth can be edifying and constructive in people's lives. That's why in John chapter 16, verse 7, when talking about the spirit that is coming, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Verse 13, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus knew that we were going to need some kind of consistent source and access to truth and help and assistance in understanding how to navigate truth. He understood it, so he gives us his spirit so that we can walk in truth, but not just in truth, but in love. And when Peter stands up this day, he's not trying to belittle the, uh, the hearers on that day, but he has a genuine desire for them to be able to acknowledge their sinfulness, to acknowledge their disconnection from God and their disobedience to the will of God so that it can make room in their lives to receive the forgiveness of God. And the truth of the matter is we come here week after week and I've told you before, the preaching moment is less about the things that I say and more about the dialogue that you have with the spirit around the word of God from his text. And in those moments, you sit in this room week after week wrestling with the spirit about how the charge and the challenge and the principles and the expectations communicated in the word of God, how they apply to your life and where the change needs to take place. Some of us 
have grown dull to the charge and the challenge of the spirit to be better and to grow, to make the necessary adjustments because we don't like the pain. But here's the thing. If I didn't allow the doctors to inflict the momentary pain so that I could find healing and realignment, the pain that I experienced wouldn't have gone away. I can deny the help all day, but denying the help is not going to dull the pain. The pain that we have in our lives, the pain of the truth, the pain of coming face to face with who we are and how we need God's help. Yes, it is painful sometimes because you want other people to think better about you. You think better about yourself. But in reality, Scripture says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. None of us got it right. None of us are perfect. And you can't hold the expectation that you will be perfect without God's help. You need him, but until you acknowledge your need for him honestly, he is limited in what he can do to help you. And yes, it's going to hurt for a little bit, but it'll be better than the pain that you have to endure walking around still broken. It'll be better than the pain of knowing that there were so many more things that you could have done if you had allowed him to work on you for just a moment. True life transformation begins with the presence of the Spirit. It continues with the truth of the message as it is declared by the Spirit. We got to stop being afraid of the truth. But I told you at the beginning of this message, God takes care of 98% of what we need to experience transformation in our lives. And points one and point two are 98% of the process that God has already taken care of. Jesus has already come. He's already died. He's already been resurrected. He has already ascended back into heaven. He has already poured out his spirit. And thank God you got connected to somebody that knew the good news, that was able to tell you about Jesus, and you were able to make your own own declaration of faith and receive the spirit to be with you so the spirit is already present you already have his word and combined with the spirit living in you you have access to the truth on a daily basis God made it available to you but here's the problem many of us don't experience true transformation in our lives because we expect God to do all of it we put 100% of the responsibility for changing our situations, for changing our outcomes, for changing our lives. We put 100% of that on God, and that's not how it works because the third key to a transformed life is the receptiveness of the hearer. Watch this. In verse 36, again, the scripture says, Peter stands up and says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, here it is. Scripture says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. But they didn't just sit in the pain of the truth. Because the scripture goes on to say, and not only were they cut to the heart, but they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The third key to a transformed life is the receptiveness of the hearer. Notice when they are confronted with the truth of what they have done, which has exposed who they are. They don't try to deny it. They don't try to defend it. They don't try to deflect from it. When faced with the truth, they don't try to deny the accusations. They don't respond to Peter. You ain't talking about me. I want the one that nailed his hands. 
I wasn't the one shouting crucify him. I was at home. They don't try to deny the accusations. They don't try to defend their actions where everybody else was doing it. Everybody else was shouting crucify him. I didn't want them to crucify me. He was causing some problems in the city, and we don't want no problems with Caesar because that'd be bad for everybody. They don't try to defend their actions when faced with the truth. And they don't try to, to deflect in the moment either. They don't respond to Peter with, who are you to tell us to do this? And you the sorry dude that been hiding for the last 50 days? How are you going to stand up here and tell us this? Where were you when Jesus was getting crucified, Peter? They don't, they don't try to deny the truth. They don't try to defend their actions in light of the truth. And they don't try to deflect to other things in the face of truth. They embrace the truth because here is the truth that they know. God already knows. God already knows where they were when Jesus was going through court. God already knows where they were when Jesus was walking up the, Rio, the Via Della Rosa on his way up to the top of Golgotha. They already know that God knows where they were when, he, when his hands were nailed to the cross, when the crown of thorns was placed on his head. They already know that God knows where they were when his body was taken down off of the cross and placed in the tomb. They already know that God knows. God also knows the conversations that they had in their own hearts that they didn't speak out loud. When Jesus did present the truth to them and give them the opportunity to hear it and respond, God already knows. And so there is no point when we come into contact with the truth of God, there's no point in trying to defend or deny or deflect because God already knows. When the spirit convicts you of the things that are wrong, ain't the time to try to defend or deflect or to deny it. God already knows. And what makes the difference what makes the difference in a life that experiences true transformation is the willingness of the one hearing the truth to receive the truth. That's it. That is the secret to transformation in our lives is our willingness to acknowledge and accept the truth. really acknowledge and accept it to allow it to get into our hearts to allow it to get past our pride to get past our ego to get past our plans to get past our perceptions to get past our intelligence to be able to get past our understanding to allow his truth to get in our hearts and allow his word to do its work in us they knew that when Peter stood up and said, it was you, they couldn't say anything, but yes, it was us. Now that we have to embrace, now the fact that we've come face to face, that we have offended God by leading, by being complicit in the murder of his son, my God, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do in light of the fact that we have offended God? And it is that kind of heart that the Lord can work with. True receptiveness is demonstrated in a desire to behave differently based upon the truth that has been given. It's why our reflection groups are structured the way that they are. Why after every message, you have the opportunity to sit down and to ask yourself, what is it that stuck out to me the most from the message today? Hopefully that is whatever truth the spirit has been wrestling with you about during the message. What stuck out to you the most from the message? But that's not the only question in reflection. 
The second question is, what am I going to do? What am I going to do differently this week based on what I heard? In light of the truth that has been offered to me, how is my life, how is my behaviors, how are my thoughts, how are my interactions going to be different in light of the truth? In verse 38, in response to the question, the scripture says, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Here it is in verse, verse 41. The scripture says, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> you know what's funny about that verse? They just had 120 people out of nowhere start speaking in languages that they don't know. They had literal thousands of people from all around the world that were able to hear them speaking in their own native language. And then Peter stands up and preaches a message that convicts them to the heart. And the scripture says, so those who received his word. So, so those who received his word. Why doesn't the scripture say, so everybody got saved and loved Jesus for the rest of their lives? Scripture doesn't say that because everybody there still had the same choice that you and I have today. And that is whether we will receive the truth of the word of God applied to our lives. The reason that the scripture has to say those who received is that clearly there were those who rejected it. Whose pride and or ego would not allow them to receive the seed of truth that was being given on that day so that the fruit of the spirit could be manifested in their lives. And that, my friends, is why even today, 2000 years later, after we still talking about Jesus, still exploring the scriptures, still illuminating the scriptures, still connecting it to everyday life. That is why the church is not maximizing its potential. Because the same free will that God gives us with the opportunity to choose him for salvation or not is the same free will we have every time he gives us another piece of truth. It is the free will to either accept and embrace the truth and adjust our lives accordingly, or it is the freedom to reject the truth. And continue to live our lives ignoring the truth. That's the difference at the end of the day. What we choose to accept. What we choose to receive. Life is not a matter of the spirit being present. Spirit is here. Wherever the people of God are, the spirit is always present. Scripture says we're two or three are gathered in my name. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. But all of us have access to the spirit even when we're alone. Because the spirit dwells in each one of us. That's why you get convicted when you're alone. So it's not a matter of the spirit being present, it's not a matter of the truth of the message. Hopefully you read your Bible. Hopefully you wouldn't be here if I was talking crazy and manipulating scripture and trying to manipulate you. So if it's not a matter of the presence of the spirit and it's not a matter of the truth of the message, then that means the only thing stopping us from experiencing a fully transformed life 
is our receiving, our willingness to receive the truth that has been offered. And not just saying I heard it and I'm good, but hearing it and saying, ah, what do I have to do? Based on the truth that I've been exposed to, what do I have to do to make sure that my life aligns with God? process of transformation is determined by our receptiveness to not Jonathan, but to the spirit of truth. I'll leave you with this. Does everybody know how to make a pound cake? It's a super simple recipe. It's got four ingredients. Flour, eggs, butter, and sugar. You know why they call it a pound cake? Because you put a pound of each of those in the bowl and mix it together, and somehow it comes out as a cake. I still wonder sometimes, like, who was the first person to figure that out? But anyway, any pound cake fans? I love a good pound cake. Especially when it's warm. <sighs> but if you have a pound of flour, a pound of butter, and a pound of eggs, can you still get a delicious pound cake? No, because you're missing the pound of sugar. If you have a pound of butter and a pound of eggs and a pound of sugar, can you still have a delicious pound cake? No, you're going to have something. I don't know if it's going to be edible, but you have something. But it's not going to be a pound cake. I think you see where I'm going, but I'm going to give you one more just in case anybody's a little slow this afternoon. If you have a pound of flour and a pound of butter and a pound of sugar, can you have a delicious pound cake? No, because you need the eggs. Because each of the ingredients works together to produce the outcome. And here's the thing, God has already given you access to his spirit. He's already done everything that he needs to do in order for you to have access to his spirit. God has already given you access to his truth, not only by his spirit, but in his word. But the spirit and the truth without your willingness to receive it still will not lead to a transformed life. Everything that you envision about your life and what your life can be, what do you think that vision comes from? It comes from the one who made you. And yeah, you might be a nasty little grubby caterpillar right now, but the reason that in the vision you see yourself flying is because that's what you were made to do. And when you're willing to receive the truth that God has for you, to allow it to inform how you live your life from day to day and the decisions that you make from moment to moment, then he can do the work in you that he's always wanted to do. And yes, it might be painful in the moment. There might be things that you got to give up, things that you got to let go, places that you can't go no more, habits that you got to break. Might be painful in the moment, but I'm telling you the momentary pain is worth the lifetime of liberty. Your life will never be transformed with only two of the keys. But all of them together, and your life will never be the same. All because Jesus loved you enough to give you a chance. Even though you messed it up yesterday, 
He's giving you another chance today. Even though you have intentionally been disobedient to how the spirit is guiding you this week. He still gave you another chance today. Even though you have done what you wanted to do. And found happiness, enthusiasm, and even joy in doing things that you know were contrary to his will. He still has given you another day. In light of the truth, how will we respond? Father, thank you so much for your spirit, for your word, and for our opportunity. We thank you, God, that even though much of our existence here on earth is filled with pain, that you have a plan for our lives beyond that pain, that you have a prescription for our difficulty, that you have a course of treatment for our confusion. We thank you, Lord, that with you, we don't have to feel like we have to hide things because you already know. And so even in this moment, we hear you, Holy Spirit, speaking to our hearts and our minds about the areas of our life that are out of alignment with your will. And our question today in response to your truth is what must we do? Lord, on the day of Pentecost, when that question was asked by the other Jews that were there, through Peter, you provided the answer. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins to receive the Holy Spirit of God. Today, we thank you, Lord, that regardless of our type of disobedience, regardless of how we have offended you, regardless of how our lives have not aligned with you, today we are presented with the opportunity to repent, to turn away from that broken thinking and that broken behavior and make the decision and the declaration that we will live our lives to please you. And we receive your spirit, the guidance of your spirit to show us the way and the power of your spirit to give us strength when we are weak. Lord, you know everything about our experience and you have given us access to all of the tools and resources that we need. We simply have to make the decision to receive the truth and to respond in some way. So help us, Lord, today. Help us to put our pride and our ego to the side and embrace the truth before us. And as we do, we celebrate you in advance for this moment of transformation, knowing that we will never be the same again. We thank you and love you, Lord. We honor you. We adore you. Bless us now during our time of reflection that our contemplation would be honest, authentic, and vulnerable with you to allow you to do your perfect work in us. In Jesus' name.